If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel, and this week, I'm excited for you to meet John Colgrove, aka Cause, founder and chief visionary officer at Pure Storage, the company that uncomplicates data storage forever. Cost co-founded Pure Storage in 2009 to empower every organization to get the most from their data while reducing the complexity of managing the infrastructure behind it. Today, Pure Storage has a market cap of over $11 billion and counts over 11,000 enterprise customers. Cost is responsible for developing and executing Pure Storage's global technology strategy. Prior to Pure, Cause was an entrepreneur in residence at Sutter Hill Ventures. He was one of the founding engineers at Veritas Software, which merged with Symantec in 2005, where his 20-year career culminated as a fellow and chief technology officer at the Data Center Management Group. He was the primary architect for the hugely successful Veritas Volume Manager and the Veritas File System. Cause holds over 170 patents in the area of computer systems and reliable data storage design. Cause has a Bachelor of Science degree from Rutgers University. And with that, let's welcome the incredible engineer, Kaz. Let's just start from the basics, pure storage. Tell us about the company in your own words, and let's go back to the beginning founding story. Tell us. You know, it's sort of funny because I always regarded myself as a software engineer, so much not an entrepreneur. I had worked at Veritas for a long time. A friend and I were the first two engineers there. I stayed there 20 years. I had really loved the experience of being in a tiny company. And there's so many things you learn about all the aspects of running a company, not just the engineering, which, you know, was my background. So I retired for a bit, built a house. We can talk about construction if you want at some point. I'm software. I didn't actually hammer in a single nail, but I was very involved in <laughs> everything in the house. And I learned that I loved to solve problems. You know, I used to think I only loved to write code. No, I love to solve problems. And so then when I was ready to go back to work after we were getting near the end of the house, I wanted to go to something small. I hooked up with a venture firm because it's a great place to find small companies. And Mike Spicer, who brought me in there, he started out asking me some questions. What's something that's going to completely change the data center? You know, I'd talk to him about my ideas for that. And we'd go out and we'd look for startups kind of doing things like that. And gradually over time, I arrived at I'd call it the core values of what became Pure Storage. They had to talk me into starting the company, uh, but I did, and uh, I've loved it ever since. So it was a great, uh, great decision. Let's go back to the product. Just walk us through what Pure Storage is solving, the problem it's solving, and what the customer experience is like. Simple. Build tech that was easy to use. You know, you think about it, you have a phone. You can use it without a manual. Uh, your kids can use it better than you can without a manual. In fact, if they can't even read the manual, they probably can use it even better. Um, you go to get in a rental car, you can drive it without reading the manual. Enterprise tech was th this archaic 
dinosaur where you needed to study manuals and become an expert in the tech in order to use it. And when you have to be an expert to use it, it's hard to use and you don't get the good value out of it. We wanted to change enterprise tech and make it really simple and easy to use. So again, build a more sustainable business model and create a company that was great to do business with for the long term. As the technology moves forward, the typical cycle is you buy something, you use it for a couple of years, then you say, my God, this is so old, you throw it out and get something new. And with data storage, you know, the system's persistent. And that means you have to migrate all the data. It's a huge task. It's really painful for all of the large enterprises that, that do that for any business, right? Imagine you buy a new laptop. How hard is it? Oh, I got to copy everything over. I've got to make sure I have nothing on the old one. Multiply that problem 100 times. And that's what it is to migrate storage on an enterprise storage array. So we wanted to get rid of that. So we created an evergreen business model that's more sustainable. It you know helps move the product forward without disruption, without migrating your data, and allows companies to be on newer tech more easily, greener tech, right? It's sustainable. It's more cost-effective. It's easier for them. And that's really what we set out to do. So we wanted to build enterprise tech that was easy to use and it was easy to keep for the long term, and we centered on data storage. What were the early big breaks? What started working? But give us a sense of of what started clicking. You know, I think one of the earliest things that really started clicking was the team we brought in. You know, I knew a lot of people in the data storage industry because I've worked in it for so long, but I didn't go out and hire a bunch of people from the data storage industry. I just went out and hired smart engineers that knew how to solve problems because I kind of had this attitude that I wanted to upend everything that had annoyed me about the storage industry for the previous 20 years. And so I didn't need people that knew what annoyed me. I needed people that could solve the problem to go out beyond. You know, I'm a big believer that every engineer, no matter how good, has blind spots. And when you can form a great team, you work better. So one of the first things that happened was Mike Spicer introduced me to John Hayes, who uh, became my co-founder, and John was brilliant. He had no background whatsoever in storage. That clicked. I could come up with like, this really annoyed me. I hated this. And we could work together to solve the problem. And John wasn't biased towards all the solutions everybody had done. You know, we did have a few people that came from the storage industry, but by and large, most of the engineers we hired did not come from the storage industry. I think that was one thing that worked well. Another thing that worked well was just, you know, Mike Spicer, the venture capitalist we got, he really worked well with us. We needed more money. He helped bring in the next venture firm. We got Anil Bushri. We got some great advice from them and from Mark Leslie, our first outside board member. And they really helped with a lot of connections to people. So, hey, we need a salesperson. We need our CEO, right? There's another thing that clicked. I'm an engineer more. I'm not an operational person. I knew I did not want to be the CEO. I wanted someone else to be the CEO. Those folks helped us hire a great CEO, Scott Dietzen. And, you know, Scott was just a fantastic CEO for a startup because he could expound on the vision, right? He he was enough of a technologist and product-oriented. He really expound on the vision. He just created a great culture, worked out fantastically. And really, I think it was the team because, you know, you get the right team and you adapt to things. You change, you, you shift course. And, you know, Pure hasn't shifted radically from where we started out, 
there's a million little adjustments along the way that if you have the right team, they do it. Of course. On that point of a million little adjustments, what were the moments of stress in building pure storage? You know, one of the things when you're doing data storage, quality is so important. If your laptop burned up in a fire, but you had all your data, you wouldn't care that much. You're like, oh, I get a new laptop. Just I've got all the data, right? The data is what has to be persistent. And so every time we've had a quality issue or a dip in quality, you know, we hired a couple of guys that came in to be our, I'll call it our second hardware team. And they convinced us to build our own hardware. That was very stressful because, and when I say build our own hardware, I mean, we didn't build a processor. We sort of packaged up standard components in a form factor that was better for us. If you remember, I was talking about simplicity. Our first product, you'd have two servers that you'd put into a rack, and then you'd have a, a shelf of disks you'd put into the rack, and you cable them all together. You had a whole jumble of cables, and you had three things you had to rack up, and three sets of power supplies. It was just a lot of parts. So the first hardware we built, we basically built one chassis. You slid the two servers, aka the controllers, into the back. You slid the storage devices into the front, and you had no cables. And it was a much simpler product, much more cost-effective for us. But, you know, shifting from, hey, we just buy hardware to we're actually sort of having a contract manufacturer build our own was definitely a stressful and interesting change. It's driven a lot of value, but at the time it was something that, you know, we worried about a lot. After we IPO'd and you, you're now a public company, you start worrying a lot more about the people you attract and things. You know, I have no more of these, hey, I've got this giant package of pre-IPO stock options to give you. Now I'm like competing in the market more. And, and we had competitors that were trying to poach our people and non-competitors. I mean, some of the big tech companies that a lot of engineers want to work for would come along and try to poach our people. And you worry, hey, as we grow, as we change from that tiny startup to a mid-sized company, are the staff that we really love and that have so much value to us, are they going to bolt? You have to worry about those things. In nearly 15 years, you've scaled to over 11,000 customers. Can you give us your simplest lesson in really nailing go-to-market? You got to hire the right person, which in our case was a fellow named Matt Burr, who started our sales org. He was our first sales person. And he was somebody, I knew him from Veritas, actually. And I knew he was the right person because when you are a startup, things are very fluid. They're very ambiguous. When are you going to ship exactly what's going to be in? Uh, oh, we're going to cut out this major feature to keep this date because we're going to run out of money if we don't. And, and you needed somebody in go-to-market who was ready to deal with the ambiguity and would have a fantastic relationship with engineers. And then Matt built up the org from people who could deal with that ambiguity and deal with the engineers. And, you know, there's a lot of sales folks out there that they're calling on some big customer and the last thing they want to do is bring an engineer because they worry about what's the engineer going to say? Are they going to say the wrong thing? You need salespeople that love to embrace engineers early on. You know, I think all of our early salespeople learned when I bring engineering in front of the customer, the customer is wowed by it. And that's especially true with a startup because when you're doing new tech, who better to tell the story of how wonderful the tech is than the people that are creating it. A hundred percent. 
how do you shape your teams to keep pushing them for vision? How do you keep that innovation muscle alive inside the company? So if you think about the difference between a startup and an established company, when you're a startup, nobody knows you. Nobody knows what you're doing. Nobody's heard of you. You have to do something fantastic. You have to say, I'm going to do something 10 times better than what's been done before. When you're some giant, slow-moving company, you say, oh, hey, I can do this thing and it's 10% better rather than 10 times better. And that's good enough for me because everybody knows who I am. We want to keep that 10 times better mentality, right? That's the essence of the startup within a startup. When we started our Flashblade product, we were still a small company. I don't remember exactly, like 100, 150 people. We took a group of folks. We actually mainly hired from outside. We only took a couple of people from inside. We put them in another building a block down the street in their own office. I was like maybe the only pure employee that had entry into that office. We really separated them out to get that startup mentality. I mean, now we're big enough, you don't quite do it that far, but it's a matter of pushing everybody to, to think big. You know, gee, we need to scale our product a, a little bit more. We have this limit on how many hosts we can have connected to us. Part of my job is to always push everybody to think not, well, we have 5,000 hosts and how do you get to 6,000, but you know, how do you get to where we could do 50,000 or 500,000 and not care? How do you re- architect the subsystem? How do you rebuild it to make it super scalable? How do you leap beyond? You want to improve performance? Don't go for you know 1%, 2% gains. Go for a 50% gain, 100% gain or more. What predictions do you have from your kind of point of view in the category? If you fast forward five to 10 years, how does storage evolve over the next decade? What's obvious to you, Cause? Well, I think the biggest obvious thing is that we're finally going to get rid of the hard drives. The hard drive manufacturers are saying, no, 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 there's too many hard drives. Hard drives are much cheaper than flash. That is bull. You look at what people pay to power these things. You look at the, the cost of the space. You look at the cost of the people to run it. And flash is already doing about the same as, as disk. And we're in an industry that sees these wonderful exponential curves. You got Moore's Law. Okay, every 18 months, we're going to double the speed of the processor. Well, you know what? We've fallen off that finally. And disk storage and memory and things like that, they've fallen off those curves. And flash storage is on a steeper exponential curve. It's going to happen. I saw that back in 2009 when we started. And people used to think I was nuts for saying it. Still a decent slice of people that think I'm way overstating it. And like any big... Thing, it's going to take a little more time to do it. But think about, you know, if you were alive 120 years ago, yep. your transportation was the very reliable horse and you had a cart that went with your horse and the horse was, hey, I just put it out in the field and it grazes. It's easy to fuel. It goes anywhere. It's flexible and adaptable. And oh, there's these hobbyists, these rich people that they play around with these automobiles, these horseless carriages, but they're never going to be anything. And 15 years later, Rich people had horses to play around with and everybody drove cars. These transitions happen. AI fuels it more. Okay, gee, with AI, you know, the more data I train on, the better data I train, the better I can access that data, the better my models. You know, I was driving my car the other day. You know, I'm trying to fiddle with my sunglasses. And so I'm just like, 
okay, you know, I'm on 880 over in Oakland and there's lots of cars around me. And I'm like, well, I can actually take my hands off the wheel. I'm watching it because I still don't 100% trust it yet. But I'm watching as the car slowly drifts a little bit towards the edge of the lane as there's a gentle curve. And I'm all ready to grab the wheel and it corrects itself. You know what I mean? And you think how much safer that makes the car. It's funny, you know, my oldest son, he's in L.A. at college now, and he decided to live off campus now, so we got him a car. We offered him a car his freshman year, but he didn't uh, didn't want any part of driving in L.A. But, you know, it used to be you'd get your kids the oldest, cheapest junker you could, so when they'd wreck it. Now I'm like, wait, you want to get them a modern, more expensive car with all the safety features, so at auto drive, so if they can't control it or don't pay attention or fall asleep, it saves them. Cause any other just predictions in plain sight to you? Something that I think all of the older generation like myself fear, which is the tech really knows what you're thinking and anticipates it. I mean, my wife and I usually go for a walk after dinner and, you know, we're walking around the block and she's talking about you know, all the stuff that her watch is monitoring her. You know, she's wearing an Apple watch and the watch is measuring her O2 level and saying, hey, your aerobic health has changed like this over the last year that I've had, right? And, you know, I get in my car and it's like, well, it'll be 15 minutes to go home, take this road. The older group of us, the way that tech anticipates you, the way it monitors you, the way it just tracks casually your behavior is sort of terrifying. To the younger generation, it's just, they're fine with it. And by the way, that's always the case, right? I mean, every older generation wants to complain about how whatever new tech is ruining whatever new generation. The way to which these things are going to pervade everybody's life and actually enhance their quality of life. As much as I will complain about it, as much as I'm a bit of a, I won't exactly say Luddite, but as much as I'm like old school on that stuff, it does improve people's lives. It makes them easier, makes them safer makes them better. And I think the social fabric, it's still playing out. You can't trust anything you see because the AI gets so good at at photos. Society has to learn how to deal with that. I sometimes wonder, it's like my kids, so they're 17 and 19, and it's like, okay, how are you ever going to get married and have kids of your own when you meet everybody on your phone instead of meeting them in person and things like that? My son doesn't get together with his friends on the weekend to do stuff so much as he sits in front of the computer playing games. They're playing games. They're all talking on the, I guess, a conference call or audio thing in the game at the same time. And so they're all playing together, but they're all in separate houses. Like, how are you ever going to meet someone and get married? (laughs) And I'm no good at predicting exactly how it will work out and be completely different. And we'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carden knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suites helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. 
Kaz, I want to transition a little bit to you. Um, you grew up in New Jersey. Was it obvious to you that you were always going to be a founder? I started doing computer programming in high school. I was in an accelerated math program. My first year of high school, the first month or two months probably it was of that year, we did a little programming thing. The first day of school, I stayed after to use the computer and came home on the late bus. For the rest of my high school career, I never made the late bus. I would go home a lot later. My mom, God bless her, would pick me up most of the time because it was like five miles in rural roads to the high school. I did walk it a few times, but she didn't like me walking it, especially if it was dark. I just loved it. And I loved programming and I loved building. I always viewed myself like that. I mean, look at my tax return. It still says I'm a software engineer. I haven't put down anything different. Like I said, when I went and built my house, I realized that what I really love is sort of solving problems. And so I would say it was the combination of doing that and then some push from Mike Spicer that got me into this. And hey, when I was at Veritas and I saw the company grow from three people to 13,000 people, yeah, it was a fun journey. I learned a ton from you know, Mark Leslie and Fred Vandenbosch and Peter Levine and the guys who led that and you know, learned a lot about different parts of how to run a company and things like that. And that's one thing I've been blessed with all the way through. Somewhere early in my career, I picked up this notion of learning from everybody I was working with, what made them special, what made them good at their job, and trying to add it to my own skills. And I've been blessed with a lot of great people to learn from and sort of drifted into this. And it's been great fun. And I love it. I love that. I always like to say, was there something in the rearview mirror that your parents did that you really attribute just to your success? Look, my mom stopped working when they had kids. She was a stay-at-home mom. I think my sisters and I benefited a lot from that. My wife, she stopped working. And, and I have to say most of the good stuff you can say about my kids, you have to attribute to her because she was very disciplined about it. I remember many arguments about some of the things like read all these books. She's like, okay, you want a nice bedtime routine? And I'm like, oh, hey, we can go out tonight. We can like interrupt the routine. She's like, no, no, we can't. They're doing this. We never had a problem getting the kids to bed ever. You know, my dad always challenged me in a whole ton of subjects. I remember conversations with my dad. We'd like go to the store on a Saturday morning and then we'd go off on some adventure somewhere. He was always so interested in so many different subjects and we'd have some fantastic conversations. And I used to do that with my older son all the time. I'd be driving him to preschool or driving him to school. You know, we don't have school buses in the town we live in. So we, the kids either walk or drive. And we've always somehow managed to be at the very furthest point from the school of the particular school district. So we generally drove the kids. That was my routine. I'd drive him in the morning and my older son, he'd just pepper me with questions. And I'd start talking about like, well, here's how glass is transparent, you know. And, and he's like five years old. I'm talking about how the molecules in glass allow the light, you know, it's like, because you get into these things. And it was really funny. My younger son, who's very different, when the older one started going to a new school, I'd sort of drop him because he was closer. And then they have 10 minutes alone with the younger one. And we just drive in silence. And one day I'm like, Eric, is there something you want to talk about? Don't you want to ask me something? And, and I just hear from the back seat, it's like, 
no, I like to look out the window. Kids are always different. I mean, that's. I love that. That's, that's amazing. Cause I'm going to turn to the quick fire round. I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. What is your favorite question to ask people when you interview them to better understand whatever you like to learn about people? I don't like to ask a quick question. I like to have a problem where I get into a, I'll call it an argument with the candidate. If I want to work with you, I know that if I can get into an argument, a, a debate about something, I want to see you push back against me. I don't want, want to see you say, well, gee, he's the chief visionary officer. I just got to listen to what he does. I want to see you defend your points. I want you to make points. I want to challenge you and I want you to defend them because I want to see that you can think logically. So when I do an interview, I always ask a problem, right? If I'm talking to a manager, I ask them about, okay, build me a hiring process to hire a great team. And then I challenge them on all the points that they try to do in that hiring process. I want to see that they have continuous improvement built in. They get feedback. And I mean feedback, you know, qualitative feedback and quantitative feedback and that they're going after metrics. If I'm talking to an engineer, I'm going to give them a little bit of a programming problem and I want to see that they are careful in the code they write and they test it and that they can change it afterwards. You know, and it's trivial bits of code because it's, you know, just an interview. But I do problem-based interviews and that's really what I go after. And I like the one other thing, I like to do the same interview for every candidate in sort of a classification, because then I can be much more objective about it rather than subjective. What is a quote that you live by? You know, you can't go back to the good old days. You always have to be moving forward, changing and improving. I'm not sure exactly where the quote comes from in that, but that's the essence of, you know, you go through life, you grow, you change, you improve. What is the biggest pinch me moment to date in your career? Probably, actually, the day that I came out to Silicon Valley to interview. I'm an engineer, flew into San Jose Airport, walking down. It was warm and sunny. It was like the evening, and I got in my rental car driving to the hotel, and I'm driving past these palm trees on El Camino Real, and I'm like, this is like something I've only ever seen in a movie. You know, I grew up on the East Coast, and, and I'm like, turn on the radio, and there's like ads for tech company jobs and I'm passing billboards for these companies that I want to work for. And coming to a tech mecca, I still remember that first drive to the airport as being like, wow, this is where I want to be in this field. I love that. What's a book that's impacted your life cause? Okay. So I like to read a lot. So there was a book called 1941 that a friend recommended to me recently. And my son and I both read it. And it was by this author, Eri Hata. He's Japanese, and it told the story of the year 1941 from the point of view of the Japanese. And it was just really interesting to watch how they didn't really want to attack Pearl Harbor. They sort of got themselves. They decided back in, like, June, okay, we're going to give the U.S. an ultimatum. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. The emperor didn't want it. All these ministers didn't want it. And none of them would speak up. And they just kind of rolled towards... World War II rolled towards uh, attacking us. And when I read history, I like reading books that take a very unique and alternate point of view from what I know. 
and it gives you a very different perspective. I mean, it's just it was just amazing to me when I read it how much nobody in the government there wanted to go and attack Pearl Harbor, but they all, because they had said it once six months earlier, felt they had to, and nobody would speak up and say, wait, this is a mistake. Last question, what's one thing you hold as sacred? I would have to say actually spending time with my kids. You start a company and it is all consuming. You know, in the early days, I was very clear on this. Like every day, I'd come to work in the morning, right? So I'd drop the kids at like school. I'd come to work. I'd work until dinner time. I would go home, have dinner. After the kids were in bed, I would come back to the office and work till midnight. Wow. And I gave up, in order to do Pure, I gave up a lot of hobbies. And the one thing I refused to give up was spending time with the kids. My wife and I agreed on on, on this at the time. She could sort of give up a bit of her time with me, but they wouldn't have understood. You know, they, when we started the company, they were, you know, five and three. That never comes again. You can't do that. And so throughout Pure, when they had Little League games, I made it. Now, that was made easier by the fact that the office was like a mile from the house. Of course. A couple of miles from school. So it's like, oh, there's a school concert. Great. I'll drive over there. The concert's supposed to go from 11 to 12, but their class will be at 11.15. I'd leave the office at 11. I'd get there at 11.10. I'd walk in. I'd see their performance. And then I'd leave and come back to the office. And back to the office by like 11.30, 11.35. I never went away from that. Cause maybe that's a really perfect high point to end on. First of all, thank you so much for joining us today. Everybody out there, if you have never checked out Pure Storage, head to purestorage.com. Cause in a short period of time, you've built a company that's valued at over $11 billion. It's profound what you have done for humanity. Thank you so much for joining us today. And we're rooting for you in every way. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. It's fun to be here.